Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18. And if you think, wow, it's been a long time since we were in Acts, you're right. Uh, March was the last time we were in Acts. So we're picking back up with uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Let's, let's catch up with where we were, or where we are, uh, where we've been, or even where Paul has been here. Uh, this is his second mission trip. He started the mission trip kind of wandering around and visiting some churches in, uh, that he had already started in, in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And then as he moved west and uh, the Spirit kept him from going north and kept him from going south and he knew back wasn't the direction, the Spirit came to him. Actually, we're pretty sure it was uh, Jesus himself came to him and uh, gave him a vision to go to Macedonia. And that was in chapter 16 that uh, we found that message. Um, the screen's going to catch up here in a second, I think. Is it, is it not cooperating, Pat? Oh, well, she'll, she'll catch it up. Um, then we, he, moved, he, he hears the, the vision, uh, sees the vision from Jesus saying, go to Macedonia. Actually, it was a Macedonian that was saying, come to Macedonia, and he goes. He does what he's supposed to. He crosses the, uh, the, the sea there. Uh, he gets to a couple of places. He stops in Philippi, and he's imprisoned while there, and he's run out. Not exactly what he was expecting. So he sneaks out. He, he, he heads on, on his uh, journey along the road, and he goes to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica... Well, he's run out. It's not a good trip so far. Um, so he goes on to Berea. And lo and behold, the Bereans, they receive the word and, and, and they hear his message. And they go, wow, that sounds like a great message. Let's go to the scripture and see if what you're saying is true. And they find that it is. And there are many believers in Berea. But then folks from Thessalonica come to Berea. And they, uh, oh, back up one, please, ma'am. Got it? All right. Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, they, uh, they run him out of, the Thessalonians running him out of Berea. And then he decides to go on to Athens. And at this point, when he goes to Athens, he is no longer in Macedonia. Macedonia is a, a district, a, a province, a, a state, we would call it. Now he is in the district, province, or state of Achaia where he is in Athens, and he's laughed out of a Athens. Not a great journey so far. Well, that's where we pick up in Acts, in chapter 18. Uh, that's the, uh, the next movement we see. Acts chapter 18, verse 1, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can take one in the pew racks, and it should match almost exactly what I will be reading to you. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. 
When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but none of these things mattered to Gallio. So we've got a number of directions we could go with, uh, go uh, in this text. Um, what's in this text for us? Well, uh, power of community would be one of them. Uh, that, that's something we could look at, how Paul worked together with um, Aquila and Priscilla. That's a direction we could go. The importance of the cooperative program. Michael, how do you find the cooperative program in there? Well, we'll talk about it. it it's, it's, the actual cooperative program isn't there, but our uh, vision, our reason for the cooperative program is there because when uh, Timothy and Silas showed up, we know from other places, they probably brought money for Paul to do the mission work. Uh, missions in urban paganism would be one of them. Certainly, uh, Corinth was an extremely pagan city. It was, uh, we're going to talk about Corinth in just a minute. Uh, how to handle rejection. Paul is facing rejection once again, especially from his own people in the synagogue. But those are all great topics and, and things to discuss, especially in a, uh, in a more Bible studies type situation, uh, more intimate situation. But we need to start this morning or, or stay this morning with Luke's intent. Luke's intent in sharing this story is to confirm the call that Paul received to come to Macedonia. And he does, does this confirmation, or he confirms this call, first through persecution. That is the first way that God confirms what Paul is supposed to be doing. Now, Corinth, uh, somewhere is a, a map. We may have already passed the map. Uh, I, may have, I think it was at the very beginning. Uh, Corinth, but don't, don't go back to the map, Pat. Uh, Corinth was an ancient uh, New York City. It was one of the largest cities in the, the uh, ancient uh, world. It had probably 200,000 people or more, which was huge for an ancient city like that. It, it was a, a port city with international diversity. It was perfect for spreading the gospel. As a matter of fact, on the, on the map, and, and maybe you can see it if uh, your Bible has maps in the back, Corinth sits on this little isthmus uh, between major land masses of Greece. And it actually sits on an isthmus that goes east and west. And 
they would take a boat that would come to the southern shore of, of Corinth, the city. They'd take that boat, lift it out of the water, carry it across the isthmus, and put it back in the water on the northern part. It was quicker to do that than go around this huge landmass, this, this other part of Greece. They got rich doing this. It was a, a great place for international trade, and it's got a, a fascinating history Corinth does, uh, that, that really isn't important to Luke's point. Uh, when we preach through uh, Corinthians, we'll talk more about Corinth and how it came to be. And then we, we, he comes to Corinth, as it says, from Athens. He left Athens. He went to this major metropolitan, cosmopolitan place, and he finds a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And it says they had recently uh, been, because of Claudius, had to leave Rome. Claudius had uh, passed an edict that does exactly what it says. It kicked all the Jews out of Rome uh, because they were fighting. They were fighting about Jesus is what the, uh, the ancient writers said. Uh, they, they misspelled it. They, they mistook or misunderstood Christus to be Crestus, uh, like the toothpaste with U.S. on the end. And, and there's, so there are some historical documents that say Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome because of the fights over the man, uh, the, the fights by the na- man named Crestus. So we get this little glimpse of how the, the, uh, the growth of Christianity among the synagogue was causing problems, so much so that uh, folks were kicked out of Rome because of it. So he meets up with, Paul, uh, with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They are uh, both of the same trade. Uh, they leather makers, leather uh, tanners, possibly tent maker. Actually, the, the word there for um, tent maker is, uh, well, I lost it. Oh, theater. They made props for theater is what the word means. Now, no self-respecting Jew would be involved in the theater trade, but that's the word. So they made cloth, they made leather, they did this stuff together, and Paul would do this to support his ministry. He, he did this work so that, verse 4, here's where we begin to really get into it. Verses 1 through 3 were more of a background. Verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Paul tried to persuade people. Now, for some folks, that word persuade kind of grates on us. It's not even a good word for me. I don't like the word. I'm, I am too passive when it comes to these sorts of discussions. Uh, and some of y'all are going, oh, really? And yeah, I mean, really. Uh, it, it, the, the persuasion part of it, I tend to have the mindset, you don't believe it? Yeah, all right. I laid it out. You don't agree? Fine. We'll move on. That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is spending time attempting to persuade the people. He knows they are wrong. He knows that the message is too important not to persuade them. And there's no other definition for this word. It is persuade. He is is telling them, you are wrong. He's doing it in a nice way, I'm sure. He's giving a, a clear presentation of the gospel. This is who the Messiah is. This is who 
Jesus is, and invariably they would have had questions and concerns and comments, and he would answer those questions as they came up. Yes, this, no, that, and, and uh, well, no, that's not exactly what I mean. No, but yes, he is, and you mean the Messiah? Sure, and that's what the prophet said, absolutely. The law, too, sure did, fulfilled that also. Yes, the sacrifices in him, lamb, perfect, lamb of God. On and on and on, they would answer these questions, and in doing so, he sought to convince them of the truth of the gospel. Now, quick quiz, who is responsible for leading someone to Christ? I'll give you two answers because you might choose the less correct one first. Who's responsible? Somebody yell an answer out. Us. That's, that's the correct but maybe less correct. Are you responsible for convincing them? See, I'm, I'm going to confuse you here. Are you responsible for changing their minds? Is it on your head if they don't come to Christ? That's the no. See, that's the Holy Spirit's work. But it is our responsibility to persuade, to convince, to discuss. We can't save them, and we can't change their heart to respond in faith. But we are to persuade and to convince them, seek to convince them. But we're going to see. There's a time to walk away. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy show up. They've still been in Athens. They've been doing some work there. Um, or they've been in, uh, actually, Macedonia. Uh, probably came from Philippi at this point. They show up, and, and according to 2 Corinthians 11 and Philippians 4, they bring a love offering to Paul. And suddenly, where Paul, previous to this verse, has been working with Aquila and Priscilla to, uh, uh, to earn a, his keep, so that he could reason in the synagogue on the Sabbath, he suddenly goes to uh, reasoning constantly or regularly. Uh, It says he devoted himself to preaching the word. So we see a daily interaction now. This love offering, here's our cooperative program, his love offering, this love offering enabled him to spend more time evangelizing and discipling and, and less time uh, making leather tents and, and, and garments or whatever it was he did. Because of this love offering, he's able to focus on them. Well, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, it seems what, like what is going on here. He spends more time in the synagogue. He spends the weeks talking to them and, and, and persuading them and convincing them. And verse 6 tell us, tells us, that as in most places, the Jews resist. When they resisted and blasphemed, verse 6 says, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, this was not an eternal statement that he was done reaching the Jews because he's going to follow this pattern everywhere he goes. He's talking about in Corinth. He's done trying to reach the Jews in Corinth, and he will begin to move now to the Gentiles. What we see with Paul is that he knew when to quit. He knew when the persuasion wasn't working. He knew when uh, there was no more opportunity to convince them that their hearts were hardened. In this case, it says they blasphemed. So they're no longer 
interested in the discussion, interested in his points, interested in uh, uh, a, a genial conversation, they have now turned against the Christ that he is trying to persuade them of. And he knows when to quit and he moves on. And, and this isn't, obviously, the end of his work among the Jews. Jews begin, uh, continue to believe. Uh, it tells us that in, in the passage later on, that many of them, many Jews and Gentiles believed. Uh, Crispus, who was the, one of the leaders of the synagogue, believed. Uh, at the end, we uh, read of a gentleman named Sosthenes, Later on in one of Paul's letters, he writes about Asosthenes. It's possible that this guy that gets beat up here at the end of our passage later on becomes a believer. And so he's, he, he, he knows that the synagogue and this group of people is no longer where I need to be. But he does have, as verses 7 and 8 tell us, some success in evangelism. So he left there. He went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, uh, ironic, right, that this Greek God-fearer who became a believer in Jesus lived next door to the synagogue. Uh, he was a, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. So if we stop here, we, we see a similar pattern, and we can anticipate the same kind of thing that happened in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, we're going to see another failure. It, is just, it just has that feeling. Synagogue kicked him out. They're upset. He's got some believers. A couple of leaders of the synagogue are believing. Oh, have mercy. Poor Paul. Now we come to the meat of it. Jews and Gentiles have believed, and the Lord, the Lord Jesus, very likely, in verse 9, appears to Paul and said to Paul in a night vision, hold on here, remember in Pentecost, when Peter preaches the sermon, he says, uh, your, your young men will see visions, your, uh, others will dream dreams, I can't quote it exactly, Paul, we know is a young man, tells us that in the beginning of Acts. This is about 10 years later at this point, 15 years later. He's not as young as he once was, but isn't that true of all of us? Um, this young man is seeing visions. God is fulfilling in Paul what he preached through Peter. And this vision that he sees, that, that Paul sees, this night vision, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. So we have our first promise of confirmation. Verses 9 through 11. The Lord says to Paul, don't be afraid. How many times does that show up in Scripture? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't live your life in fear. Don't make decisions in fear. Fear is never the correct motivator for a child of God to make a decision. It must always be faith. 
don't be afraid, he says. Promise number one, I am with you. I am with you. Every celebrity, it seems, has some sort of bodyguard. And customarily, those bodyguards are about ten times the size of the celebrity. Um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be like the only guy I could think of off the top of my head who shouldn't need a bodyguard. He's a bodyguard and a celebrity in one. Or you might think, this is where my brain goes, Bugs Bunny cartoon, I don't remember the little chihuahua's name, but the big bulldog's name was Spike. Y'all tracking with me? Y'all remembering this cartoon? Big bulldog walks around. And the little chihuahua, hey, Spike, hey, Spike, what are we going to do now, Spike? Huh, huh, what are we going to do now? And uh, he, the little chihuahua, he picks on somebody. Yeah, hey, yeah, don't come around here anymore. Ah, we'll take care of you. And Spike, shout out, and hits him. And, and Oh, thank you, Spike, thank you. You know, that's, that's the vision I think we should have here. God doesn't tell us to shut up. Let's, you know, all analogies break down. But that should be our response to the fact that Jesus says, I am with you. Because we're the little chihuahua able to take on the Goliath, the giant of Satan, sin, corruption, all of these things. We can take those things on because we know we have Spike. We know we have the bodyguard. We know we have the strength behind us to back us up. We're, we're real, real confident when we know we've got a, a posse behind us. We've got more than a posse could ever be. We have Jesus. I am with you, he says, and that's all we need. That was all Paul needed. The promise could have stopped here. The vision could have stopped here. The Lord, it could say, the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent for I'm with you, period. That would have been all that needed to be said. And Paul could have walked away confident. We can walk away confident that the Lord is with us. But he goes on. God, uh, through Jesus, expands this promise. Promise number two here is that no man shall harm you. No man shall harm you. For I'm with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you. This, this quote came up recently and was attributed to uh, Lottie Moon. And then I started looking for it online to get it exactly right. And I found it attributed to uh, revival preacher George Whitfield and uh, attributed to some guy named Henry Martin. And uh, John Piper shared it online. And I think I found, oh, uh, John David Livingston it was attributed to David Livingston at some point, but I tracked it down, best I could, to a Puritan by the name of Increase Mather. Increase is not a popular name for boys these days. In 1672, I believe his son's name was Cotton, so, you know. But Increase Mather wrote a letter to his church. In the beginning of the letter, he's, he's talking about, the beginning of the sentence, he's talking about, I thought Jesus would have taken me home by now. I thought my time was over. But, he says, I knew that until my work be done, I am immortal. See, that's the promise here to Paul. 
Now, it, it's even more uh, explicit than that. He doesn't tell Paul, you won't die. He says, no one's going to lay a hand on you. Nobody's going to harm you. That is the promise. But Paul, even if they do, because Paul got his share of beatings, even if they do, Paul knows he is safe. He is immortal until God is done with him. If people kill him, it's because God was done with him. What, what, what does he say in uh, another place? To live is Christ. That's my job. If I'm alive, it's for Jesus. To die is gain. I win it away, folks. Kill me, don't kill me. Woohoo! I'm excited. And promise number three that Jesus makes. Don't be afraid. Or I'm with you. No man shall harm you. I have many people in this city. Now, we don't know what he means by that. If he, there were believers, many believers already there uh, from the time that Paul had already been working, uh, evangelizing the city, or if this is Jesus' knowledge of who would be saved, uh, doesn't matter. The promise is that a harvest and a church are sure for Corinth, that Paul will be successful. And, and we use that word, and it doesn't mean what we think it, it means most of the time, but he will see a church in Corinth. So right off this vision, right? I mean, he tells us then he stays a year and a half, but soon after this vision, when Paul's thinking, everything's going to be good now, I got the promise from the Lord, verse 12, persecution. Paul goes before the proconsul Gallio. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, verse 12, Acts 18, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in, contrary, or in ways contrary to the law. So they brought him before, and it's the argument that they made in Thessalonica and in Philippi, that this is not a sanctioned religion by Rome. It's the Jews saying that. They say, this isn't Judea Judaism, y'all. This is something else. So Rome, you need to take care of this. He's stirring up people. He's causing problems. Claudius had already kicked, out, kicked the Jews out of Rome because of the confrontations between Christians and Jews over Jesus. And now he faces it again. And he had to be thinking, um, Lord, the vision just a little while ago, you're with me, no harm will come to me, you have many people, and here I am in front of Gallio facing the same accusation that got me kicked out of Philippi and Thessalonica and ultimately Berea. Interesting thing about Gallio is because of him, we have one of the surest dates in Acts. This is A.D. 52, just about guaranteed, because we know when Gallio served as proconsul. Now, the other thing you need to know about Gallio, and, 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 and you need to step back from the scripture for just a second and, and see God's hand in this. Gallio only served one year as proconsul. He had a fever. It made him leave. Um, his dad was Seneca. Uh, you might have heard the name, his, uh, the elder, 
Uh, his brother was Seneca the Younger. Seneca, Seneca the Elder was a rhetorician well-known in Greece. His brother was a government official. This was a well-placed, well-to-do family. So whatever Gallio says is going to carry extreme weight. As a matter of fact, his ruling as a proconsul of Rome will set precedent all over the Roman Empire. See, what had happened in Thessalonica and Philippi, it was local guys. It was uh, our city council saying, nope, you can't do that here in Sulphur. When Gallio speaks, it's going to be Governor Edwards saying for the entire state, but actually setting a precedent for the entire nation, the entire empire of Rome. He was there one year, y'all. Don't miss God's hand in this. If it had been a different proconsul, it might not have gone this way. If it had been a different proconsul, it might not have carried the weight that it did with Gallio. They show up at, at Gallio's place. They make this accusation. And verse 14, as Paul was about to open his mouth, as Paul was about to defend himself, as Paul was about to talk about the gospel or whatever he was going to say and say, no, this isn't different or, or whatever, we can look at some of the ways he responded to these accusations in the past and get a good idea of what he was going to say. As he was about to open his mouth, Gallio interrupts him and says, I don't need to hear anymore. Y'all are in the midst of a religious squabble, and I could not care less. And Jews were not a loved group in Rome. Uh, that's why they were kicked out of, of Rome, the city. Uh, we're going to see as we move to the end of the passage, the, the anti-Semitism and, and the persecution that Jews could endure. But when he makes this ruling, what he is saying to them is, since it's a religious squabble, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to bother with it. And because it sets a precedent for the entire Roman Empire, this one ruling frees up missions for the next 10 years or so in the Roman Empire. Tell me God was not planning this. Tell me this was not God working out His plan and His will. And what this... Uh, this ruling does two things primarily. It says that Christianity is no threat to Rome. This faith, this new belief, if they want to, if the Jews want to call it that, are, is no uh, threat to Rome. And it reverses the local decisions that happen in Philippi and Thessalonica. So those little city councils don't have any leeway, any 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 um, seniority at this point, and the ruling is overturned. By this one act, by this one decree, basically not even listening to the accusation or not listening beyond the accusation, Gallio is responsible for the evangelization of the rest of the Roman Empire over the next 10 years. God's hand, God's sovereignty in that decision. And then at the end of the passage, kind of it is an afterthought, after he says he refuses to be a judge of such things, verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but none of these things mattered to Gallio. 
as if to show us how much Gallio did not care about the Jews and their religion, it appears that Greeks or Romans took Sosthenes, a Jew, beat him, and Gallio just let it happen. It wasn't a big deal to him. So he wasn't doing this out of the goodness of his heart. It wasn't, well, I really like the Jews. Let's let, let them have their religion. It was he did not care, but God used that to spread the gospel. What are some lessons we can get just from Gallio's tribunal? We're going to stop here for a second, then we're going broad to broaden it up to the persecution. Uh, lessons from his tribunal. Christianity is on a different level than the state. Faith and Christianity touch what government can't. We serve something greater than a country. We serve something greater than a leader. We serve something greater than anything we can have on this earth. We are part of a kingdom that Jesus said is not of this world. And, and there are issues that while the government may help on, where they, they may be uh, useful on, they can't make those decisions. The government cannot decide right, what is right and wrong. The government can enforce what they believe to be right or wrong, but the government can that not decide that. God has decided that. God's word has de decided that. And, and Gallio, in so many words, or maybe even so few words, is stating that. This is not the government's business. It is not for me to say whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. Your religion is your religion. I mean, this is, this is separation of church and state right here. This is the beginning, uh, maybe, of it. Uh, I don't know that Jefferson ever pointed to this, but that's what he's doing. This is not any of our business. This is for y'all to decide. So it's on a different level than the state. It is certainly not up to, uh, the government is not up to, the state is not up to the level of Christianity. Christianity transcends governments. Our faith in Christ is powerful and strong and worthy of worship, not our faith, but Christ himself, worthy of worship regardless of the country in which we live. The believers right now in North Korea serve the same God we serve, are saved the same way we are saved, and experience the same joy in Christ that we experience today. I think the second lesson we can get from Gallio's Tribunal is that our response to what's happening around us may be, must be fundamentally different than the government's. Paul will say uh, by his actions what Peter and John said by their words, y'all make the rule about whether or not we can talk about Jesus, but we're going to talk about Jesus anyway. And that's what Paul did. You can beat me, you can cane me, you can throw me out of the city, and I'll go, but I'm just going to tell about Jesus as I go. So when we respond to what's going on around us, it should be separated from what the government might say. We find our faith, our response, rather, to what's happening in our faith. And it may agree with the, the government, and it may not agree with the government, but what's important is that it agrees with God's word. That's where we get our response. And then Gallio sees, lastly, one cannot confuse congregation and country. They are different. The church is not the country. The church is not the government. 
And while the church may have influence and should use that influence, especially in a democratic republic as we, uh, in, uh, like we live in, we cannot confuse the two. The church is greater. Our greater loyalty is Christ. Rome, about 10 years from now, is going to change its mind. It's going to kind of overturn Gallio's uh, ruling here. But Rome didn't change its mind because it decided that Christianity was different from Judaism. It wasn't looking that deeply. Rome changed its mind because God challenged Caesar. God will challenge every government. God's word will challenge every decision that is made by government. And God's word should be where we fall. Gallio unknowingly knew, if you, can, if you can do that, that the government had no business in the church. And the church is fundamentally different from the government. So we get to the end of Luke's recounting of this time in Corinth. Paul's about to move on. Now, Paul wrote two letters back to the Corinthians. Actually, he probably wrote three or more four possibly letters back to the church in Corinth. While in Corinth, he wrote very definitely 1 Thessalonians, probably 2 Thessalonians. There's a lot that went on in Corinth, and Luke just skips over that because that is not the point. What Luke is showing us here is that God used the persecution in Macedonia to do at least two things. First, it was to push Paul to Corinth. Corinth ended up being one of Paul's most dynamically gifted churches. Corinth had, oh my goodness, it had problems. And yet it was a church of incredible gifting. So much so that Paul had to sort out their gifts and say, all right, yeah, I know y'all all got these gifts, but here, use them properly and correctly to build up the church God is using persecution, don't miss this, to do this, to push Paul to Corinth, to push him through Macedonia. And remember, Gallio was there for one year. We don't know how long it took exactly for Paul to get from Troas through to uh, Corinth, but he had a window of one year to appear before the proconsul of, uh, 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 of Achaia, Gallio. And God used that persecution. Imagine if he hadn't been persecuted in Philippi and he hung around for six months, eight months, a year, whatever, however much longer than he did. And, and Thessalonica ended up being okay. And he hung out there for a couple of years and he missed Gallio. Would, would God have been thwarted in his plan? No, but that's because God had worked out the plan all along to get to Corinth then the next result of persecution to free up the mission field for a decade. Ten years. Imagine if we had ten years of gospel freedom in a country like North Korea or South Sudan or any other uh, of the, the countries where uh, Indonesia or any country where persecution is at its greatest for Christians. Burma. A decade of freedom. 
And we see it. Look at his letters. Look at the rest of Acts. How God, the gospel was heard, we're going to read in one place, all over the country. Everybody had heard the gospel. That's a pretty amazing fact. But don't miss. Now, we, we, we might say, well, Michael, Philippi, he was run out. Thessalonica, he was run out. Berea, he was run out. Run out. Well, 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 don't think Macedonia. Remember, he's moved on from Macedonia. He's not in that province anymore. He's in Achaia. But don't think that Macedonia was wasted either because we've got to take the long view. In ministry, you always take the long view because tomorrow may be royally messed up. And the next week, because of tomorrow, may continue to be messed up. But we take the long view and see what God is doing, how God is leading, what God is providing now for us to make it through to the next month or year. And when we look back, we can say, oh my goodness, I had no idea how God was working in those situations. But he was. Macedonia wasn't wasted. Philippi became a loving, generous church to Paul. They sent money to Paul. They sent workers to Paul throughout his mission work. Thessalonica became Paul's most aggressively evangelistic church. And because of their questions, because they had led so many people to the Lord, and then people, as they got older, began to die, they started wondering, wait a minute, Paul, uh, Jesus was going to come back. He said he was coming back. People are dying. What the world's going to happen? So we get Second Thessalonians telling us, don't worry. Don't worry about it. They're asleep, but they're asleep in the Lord. He's coming back, and he's going to take care of all that. We get some great hope because of the church in Thessalonica. Berea, to this day, celebrates the Macedonian vision. They have artwork of Paul bringing the message of the gospel to Berea. So persecution does not mean failure. Failure does not mean failure. We see some lessons from this persecution. First of all, if we are faithful to Scripture, we will have a true home in no earthly system. Paul would go to Philippi, he'd make this group mad. Go to another town, he'd make the other group mad. The Greeks didn't really like him. Uh, the Romans didn't really like him. The, the Greeks in Athens thought he was silly. Uh, the Romans, some of them thought he was stirring up trouble. The Jews thought he was a preaching false, uh, a false religion. Nowhere Paul went did he have a home. And that will be us if we are faithful to Scripture. We will find no home in any earthly system. We won't be comfortable anywhere until we are in our heavenly home. Second, persecution is what God uses to direct, to purify, and to confirm. Persecution is not a dead end. Persecution is not uh, uh, a, a stop sign. Persecution is just one more tool that God uses. Number three, when God has called there's no such thing as setbacks and failures if we are faithfully obedient. Well, God, that didn't work out the way I thought it was. And God says, in, in my sarcastic, snarky tone, who pays you to think? He says, your plan's not my plan. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. You see persecution and failure and setback. You see, you see the, a, a, a no way out. And I see just one more way that I am moving you forward to your Corinth, to your faithful 18-month ministry for Paul, to a, an open mission field for a decade. 
God is playing the long game, not the short game. When God is called, and if we are faithfully obedient, that's why we must pursue his design, his plan, his will. God's, God's design was perfect. God's design still is perfect. God, uh, our, our three circles here, God's design was for us to live in perfection, to be whole constantly, to live in perfect relationship with him. Our sin always messes up God's design. When we decide we have a better idea, whether it's Adam and Eve in the garden, whether it's us looking at a, by our terminology, failure and saying, see, this isn't where God wanted us, this didn't work out. When it may just be that that failure pushes us on to the next failure, which pushes us on to the next failure, which pushes us on to Corinth, to a strong ministry and a strong church. We, we say that the failure is a result of our sinfulness, and it may be. It may absolutely be. It may be just a result of God moving us forward. But when we sin, when we are outside of his will, then yes, we take on God's will and plan and design as our own, and we invariably mess that up and break it. And that leads not just to a brokenness in God's design, but a brokenness in our lives. And we search for an answer. We search for a way out of that brokenness. We think we can fix what we broke, and God is saying, nope. No more than you can fulfill my plan without me. You can't fix your brokenness without me. And yet we try, and we, we medicate, and we do all these things, and God says, just turn to me. Come to me. The gospel. Come to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. The gospel that says Jesus was killed and buried and rose again on the third day for our sins. That he died for you and he died for me. And we can accept that and believe that by faith. That he did those things. And that will save us if we repent of our sins. Turn from what we are. And we believe in Jesus Christ. As simple as that sounds, it is. But it's not easy. And it's free for us, but it wasn't for Jesus. And when we accept that gospel, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we begin to pursue God's design again. And we uh, recover God's design in our lives. And we find, like Paul, that he's got a plan for us. He's got a design for us. And we don't know what it includes, whether it includes failures and setbacks and persecutions that lead to what we will call successes, or maybe it begins with successes. It doesn't matter, though, as long as we are in his will and following his plan of taking the gospel around the world. That's our, our purpose. That's our goal. That's why we exist as a church. So this morning, maybe you need to figure out how you can live God's design. Maybe in order to live God's design, you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior for the, this is the first time. This is the first time you've heard of it. This is the first time you've responded to it. And you need to accept Christ. Maybe you've accepted Christ and you need to be baptized. 
You need to follow in obedience. Maybe you need to give some things to him this morning as you live a life of holiness and obedience. You need to recommit and return to him. Maybe you need to be obedient in a ministry area, uh, an area of the church. Or maybe you just need to join our church. We're going to pray. And let God work on your heart as you turn to Jesus and turn to his design for you. God, we know that things don't always go the way we plan. Lord, we, we, we have uh, our own ideas of how it should be, and then, then things don't work out. And we, we wonder how we messed up. And, and, and Lord, we will, you will tell us. We'll know where we messed up. God, give us the faith. Give us the relationship with you, and by your Holy Spirit, lead us to see when it's just a part of your plan. That the persecution we're experiencing is just confirmation that we are right where we need to be. Lord, we thank you that you used everything to perform your will. And God, this morning as we come to you to respond, I I pray that you would work on every heart. If there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, they'll uh, make that decision today to follow you. Maybe they want to make a decision that they've already made public. And by following in baptism, the, the true public obedience. God, maybe there are folks just want to pray to you. Try to return again today to your design. Whatever the decisions are, I pray that you would work on their hearts. And you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we sing, let's stand. Let God work on your heart as he does business with you. You do business with him.